Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Hi, and welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. Got a very special guest on today. I've got author Stephen Richards, who's a good friend of mine. We'll go back a long, long way. Uh, you might know the name from uh, two well-known books, uh, which were or- originally called Viv Graham, Simply the Best, and Viv and the Geordie Mafia. Uh, hi, how are you, Stephen? You okay? Hi, Steve. It's great to be here. And uh, you're right, we do go back a long way. I remember running around the streets of London with you. <laughs> For, uh, I don't know, things for auctions for some of the uh, chaps down that way. But, uh, yes, that's another story. Yeah, good stuff. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about your background first. How did you, how did you, uh, how did you first get into to, to writing? Well, it's nothing complicated. I got into writing because nobody else could do it. <laughs> I'd asked that many people to uh, create this idea that I'd come up with. It was keep uh, festering in my mind the genesis of the idea that uh, Viv Graham wanted his story told. Now, that might skip me a little bit far-fetched, but it kept eating and chewing away, chewing away. So I got in touch with a lot of uh, academics at universities in their uh, English literature departments, asked lots of them, right through to, uh, I don't know, this guy in Durham, he, he did a lot of crime documentaries as well, but nothing, no joy. And then somebody said to me, why don't you write it yourself? I thought, hang on a minute, I can't, I can't write, I can't write for toffee. <laughs> anyway, so, I, you know, I did, I did do that, but whether it was a proviso, I was also hovering a little bit in uh, mind power, cosmic organism at the time, that I'd have to do something rash. And that was, whatever I wrote, however I wrote it, it, it had to be left. <laughs> and for that, you know, I faced a lot of uh, criticism from people, but I didn't tell them all that. I thought, no, that's it, right, okay. So I did it, the first one, and by golly, I tell you what, it was pallet after pallet load of books that, that were selling because, you know, fame goes to your head. You think, oh, wow, you know, I, I'm the greatest writer since uh, Dickens sort of thing. So I did another one. And again, pallet loads and pallet loads of books. Uh, then I did a third one, all, all on Viv Graham, of course, um, trilogy there. So that's how I got into it. But however... I never thought about going to a publisher, never even crossed my mind. You know, I just started my own publishing company then, and that was it. So flames grew into uh, volcanoes, (laughs) (laughs) and that's basically the short story. Yeah, I mean, to pick up, uh, you know, to to pick up on the subject matter is is one thing, but it's quite unnerving to to go into that world. Obviously, I've followed in your footsteps by, you know, by writing crime books, but were you not concerned, you know, at the outset about the subject matter? Of course, you know, just to give those people who don't know the story watching, you know, I'll read the back of the very first book. New Year's Eve, 1993. Viv Graham's life came to a violent end. His involvement with the Geordie Mafia 
is unfolded. The truth, pain and anguish revealed in this action-packed book alongside a gripping catalogue of crime never before compiled. Feared gangland reprisals abruptly end academic views. Newcastle United's directors PA company refused comments. Spine-chilling real-life hitman presently based in Manchester gives his view on the gangland assassination of Viv. Manchester and Newcastle super city comparisons. It's, it's a book that's full of so many different topics, but the key to it is, and the front page is, you know, the front cover is, is Viv Graham's face. And Viv was, of course, as you quite rightly mentioned, cold-bloodly murdered, New Year's Eve, 1993. So this isn't people playing with cap guns on the streets of Newcastle. This is genuine gangsters, the Geordie Mafia, as you, you coined the phrase. Um, was there no worries or concerns about reprisals when you started digging around in this history? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I mean, we weren't dealing with uh, the very high-ranking criminals. That wasn't the problem. High-ranking criminals are, as you know yourself, from your own experience, very easy to deal with. However, if the high-ranking criminal tells you to go and jump off the town bridge, then that's what you must do. Whereas the lower echelons of the criminals, that was the concern, because they didn't have a code. They didn't work to any codes of conduct and uh, misuse of uh, violence, if you like. So yes, I was very, very much on edge. I mean, like yourself, uh, I've been trolled, I've had the normal, uh, you've got the personality of a cabbage, your voice is jarring, this, that, whatever, all of that stuff, but that's not a problem. But when you are in a situation where you believe that there may be a problem about to arise, on many occasions you've been out doing interviews, I've had a psychic out with me, a medium out with me, Numbers of times we've had to sort of oof, blast off fast from the areas that we've been in because the, the, there was a concern about reprisals. And of course, don't forget, I mean, I travelled the country on this. Peaside was the most um, jarring in terms of potential danger. Um, I even remember, even afterwards, after... Um, you know, maybe a few years after, we had a chap, Andrew, Andy Hutt. He was going to play Lee Duffy in a film that we had lined up. But then I was at the funeral of Andy Hutt, you know, and I was taking photos. And, you know, uh, that, that was probably the most frightening thing because there was a lot of uh, sort of lower echelons of the crime world there. And that's no disrespect to Andy Hutt. They simply were there because the outreaches of his uh, friends and family, they sort of toured along with them. Um, and I got out of that uh, graveyard pretty, pretty uh, nifty because um, there were problems there. But certainly, yes, in terms of threats, uh, death threats and that sort of thing, you know yourself, um, if you're not connected, if you haven't got support behind you and you can go and see one of these high echelons of the criminal world and say, look, I'm getting problems here, and then they'll put the word out, that's fine. I didn't have any of that. So I was on guard just about 24-7. <laughs> you know, I was awake yeah. about 23 hours a day and uh, slept for one. 
What kind of person was Viv Graham? I mean, just just give people an idea of, of the person that you found by you know going out and and meeting his close friends and his family and of course his his widow. Viv Graham was perhaps an accidental hard man. He worked the doors and of course his size, his ability to box, his frozen shoulder that put him out of boxing, then had to land him in a job that he could make money. Well, of course, that was a dorm. And then it wasn't licensed. It was easy enough. And then one or two people came along and said, can you do this? And he was always helpful. The guy couldn't say no, to be honest. He perhaps had an underlying weakness for gambling on the horses. Um, and as his widow uh, reminded me that many times the bailiff would be knocking on the door and Viv would be hiding behind the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> From the bit, you know, so you've got this 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 uh, hard man who's um, you know terrified of the bailiff knocking on the door. So he couldn't say no. He was helpful to everyone he could be. But as he became more and more adventurous in in his role, perhaps he's seen himself as invincible, and that was that was the danger. That is always the danger, and you know yourself from those people who are even gunned down at their own front doors, the, 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 uh, the high echelons of the underworld, they become uh, metal-coated, if you like, I believe that's a fact. And that's what I believe happened to Dave. He, he simply thought he could walk about with impunity, without protection, whereas he should have had a few sidekicks around him that were looking out for him, but he didn't. He just went there on his own, he knocked on the door on his own, he didn't bring a gang with him, and, you know, that, that was the downfall. He didn't have any infrastructure um, of wingmen, you know, in, in his um, kit. And when he was, was murdered, of course, no one stepped forward. I think his brother-in-law was the only one to stand firm and stand up to a lot of people. Other than that, no one came forward and said, I will um, take vengeance on his death or I will... So, therefore, the killers had no problem about... They didn't mean to take him out, but accidentally he shot a bit higher than his legs and... Sadly, we know he died from a massive blood loss uh, many hours later in the hospital. So that, that's the type of guy Viv was. However, I can give you a little clue. If you just put your hands together and just look through uh, them and look at his eyes, yeah. just look at his eyes, you will see there there is still cold-bloodedness in him. He was still the type of guy that wouldn't take nonsense and he could react very quickly uh, on that. And many, many times he had. And size of the opponent didn't matter. He once beat a seven foot three sailor up from uh, the uh, American Navy in Newcastle. So it didn't, he had no fear. That, that was the, the basic instinct. And his father always said, uh, and he, he said in the interview, that, look, son, you can't dodge bullets. And I think possibly that, that that was something they didn't listen to. 
never a never a truer word spoken. The the, the fact that you mentioned Middlesbrough brings us to the to the next person I would like to talk about, and that of course is is Lee Duffy. You say that Viv was never uh, concerned about anyone or, or or bothered about an opponent, but the Lee Duffy uh, legend um, is something which is 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 covered, you know, in your books. Um, why did that fight never happen? A number of reasons, because again, uh, Lee Duffy had a big cohort of followers, even though he was disliked in many quarters. But remember, he still had his junkie following, if you like, um, whereas Viv didn't. He couldn't just bring up another fellow doorman and say, oh, by God, this, this guy from Teesside coming with six in a van uh, and wants me to you know, go somewhere and have a fight with him. Who's Viv really going to have around him? Not many. I mean, yes, there was a few like Billy Robinson from Gateshead, um, you know, Gentle Giant, but he wasn't, again, that sort of man that would become involved in that. So I think Viv possibly, at this stage, it was late in both of their um, criminal, or not, not criminal, but in their careers of, of what they were involved in, and I take that back from Viv. He wasn't, Viv wasn't involved in many criminal things. Um, neither was Lee Duffy to the point. However, I think that may have been the only time Viv didn't blow caution to the wind and he perhaps realised perhaps this man was a little bit more formidable than he could take. Because now, Lee Duffy, of course, he was possibly metal-coated. The amount of uh, action taken on his life to kill him, to, do, to shoot him, to set fire to him, all sorts of things. This man just literally could walk through a jungle, you know, and, and come out the other end in one piece. That perhaps was something that they've looked at and thought. There were rumours that, that they've was sat on a toilet with his belly rumbling and feared um, you know, that was one part of the story. The other part of the story, he knew it was a setup when he was invited to attend to have the fight in the warehouse. But there were too many of the Viv haters there. And he couldn't just fight one man. He could perhaps be fighting a whole warehouse full of people. So possibly that was the reason. There was a lot of families, you know, in and around the West End of Newcastle in particular, you know, when you were putting these books together in the in the 90s. And uh, again, you cover them in, in all three books, the, the likes of the Sayers family, the Conroys, the Tams, the Harrisons, of course, the, you know, the list is endless. But those those essentially were the, the four main families. I mean, at the time, were, you know, were those families living in, in harmony or would you say disharmony? Disharmony. Disharmony and possibly still are. But I'm not adding fuel to the fire. I would wish to all get together the Christmas do and say, look, let's bygones be bygones. Um, but certainly uh, I, I spoke with a number of those family family members, um, one in particular, and uh, it seemed that there was no logic to the reasoning behind why they shouldn't all get on. There wasn't any real logic other than it was simply a case of bravado or 
Machismo, who was the hardest, the toughest, two, uh, who had been the police informant, everyone except them. And, you know, that's all what it was about. It was about council estate hard men. It wasn't anything to do with the high. I, I removed one family um, from them altogether, the Sayers. Um, were in a different class entirely. You know, they they were and still are to some degree in the higher echelons. Dare I say, not the crime world, but out of respect for them. Their families, um, you know, lived in, in worked in different fields and tried to legitimately make money, uh, even though they perhaps did bend the rules a little bit. Whereas the other families were in council estates and just being hard men wanting to be the hardest and not wanting to be put down lower than anybody else. That, that's what it was all about, the pecking order. At the time that you were putting together the books as well, there was, uh, there was a, a huge trial involving the Sears. And I, I mean, I remember as a, as, as a slightly younger man, uh, you know, seeing a website come up, the, the John Sears website, and you were aiming to cover the, the murder trial of uh, Freddie Knights, which would have been the first time that anyone would have actually gone in and done that kind of thing. It was quite adventurous. Uh, but unfortunately, you fell foul of the uh, the justice system at the uh, the first hurdle. Yes. <laughs> I travelled back and forth every day for three months. One day I'm in court and uh, you're writing notes and you're maybe not following the, the, the sort of bylines of the case. And I heard my name. Steve Richards. The judge. Uh, stand up, Mr. Richards. Bloody hell. He said, uh, I gather you have a website and you're reporting this case. Um, I would like you to... Uh, Take it down, please, and stop reporting. Yes, my lord. Yes, I will do that this evening. So obviously, you will be. I'd already been held in contempt of court for Charlie Johnson um, for his website. Now I've got a two-week suspended prison sentence. <laughs> it cost sixty-four thousand quid. So that experience told me, don't meddle with the judge. Yes, my lord. Right, I'll do that. Court the site stayed up, but I just didn't report any more. After the trial, of course, then I was able to add bits about what would happen. And I gave it quite clearly that there would be surveillance. There would be more surveillance. Uh, one of the um, associates of John Sayers contacted me and said, well, well, how? I said, believe you me, they will have surveillance on you. Don't ask how. But... Um, it's a long story because the Watson, who, who was uh, also for the Freddy Knight uh, murder, we have to go back a, a, a number of years here because, uh, and rest his soul is dead now, uh, Kenneth Panda Anderson. <laughs> um, I, I was doing a few stories on him and we intended to do a book together. And... I was uh, at his home, uh, and he said, oh, he said, uh, and he t you know how he used to talk in a very low voice, if you come, come next week, I'll have a world exclusive for you, a world exclusive. 
So, of course, me uh, should be wet behind the ears saying, oh, yes, that's great. Of course, the previous week, uh, I put, I'd given an interview to the Sunday Sun, which is small, small Newcastle newspaper, I think it's still gone now. Um, and I said that the killer of Viv uh, Graham, the killers were informants. Now, I must make this very, very clear from here. Every avenue that I have explored via the sales, not once has there been a single line of proof. In fact, everything has indicated that they are not informants. They've never been informed. It would be impossible because poor John Sayers wouldn't be locked up all these years and taking all the abuse from the police that he has if he wasn't informed. However, Ken's uh, Panda Anderson took it upon himself um, to invite me back the following week because everyone was aiming at the Sayers as being informants. So, John says apparently read the article and thought everybody's calling me and so my family informant. Bloody hell, he must have pointed the finger at me. So, and quite wrongly, wrong he was about that because the person I was pointing the finger at was Watson, who was in court and later on was proven to be a police informant. And that was the person, but I couldn't name that person because obviously, um, as you know, uh, Later on in legal aspects, my name was raised again in another court case um, by a barrister because the person actually was thrown. However, so I went back to kind of found out this a week later. And we're in there and we're in there and uh, in his house talking, talking, and then knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. He walks in. Hello, John. I stuck my hand out. It's it's a great pleasure to meet you, John Sears, of course. And <laughs> now, of course, that's the external me, but the internal me is like, <laughs> what, what the, you know? So he said, uh, uh, "Look, he said uh, a guy has been calling me family, and uh, you know I, I don't like anybody calling me family." He was very nice about it. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't nasty. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you the thing is. The lower echelons of the crime world would just come at you with a machete, you know, or, or blow the wheels off your car. Yeah. Whereas John had far much more charisma than that. Far much more. He just walked in a room and it was, you know, you knew, you knew straight with. And as it happens, and no just disrespect to Kenneth uh, Panda Anderson, but the week before, he had been doing a disservice to the uh, sales by putting them down. So anyway, I then started to raise this when John was in his house, and I said, ah, but last week, right, uh, he said, uh, everybody out, everybody out, I'm not having anything going on here, everybody out. So he, he's flustered now by going, cranky, I've been blown up here, I'm going to be out, out. So we all went out. So John, John went back to his car, it was a, was owned by previously by a, a Manchester United footballer. It was a massive Mercedes, I think, with blacked out windows. And uh, you know what? The longest walk of my life was from Panda Anderson's back door down that garden path. And there the car sat 
blacked out windows. And in my mind, I seen the window come down. <laughs> and something point out of that window. And I, I swear I thought, this is it. This is the end. But no. So I, I tentatively went up to the concert, done, done. And, and as, as it happened, we met further in another car park we arranged it. And you know what? I was taking selfies and everything with the guy. Um, but I couldn't tell John what I knew about Watson being informed because I didn't have a solid piece of evidence. But I had a lot of other evidence. But, and what a gentleman, you know. And from there on, that can I just say, from there on, uh, I covered a lot of his stuff. And I knew he had nothing to do with the killing of this guy, this night. Uh, Freddie Mac, I knew, knew, I knew he had nothing, nothing. So I wished then to pursue it to show that it was all a fit up. And as it happened, uh, one of the uh, head prosecutors of, of the CPS um, could be being, going to be discredited from what I gather. Um, in an ongoing case uh, from the sales company, that pilot. But I can't say any more because obviously it's a back. But Jonathan Silver, who was the defence PC, um, he ran rings around them all. And of course, when the trailer end ended, and they must have they left John and uh, the rest out of the back door, not watching of course, or he had an earpiece fitted by the citizen evidence. Um, and I was, I caught sight of John, I was running down the street after him, John, John, <laughs> and jumping around taking selfies again. Uh, and again, and since then I've met him numerous times, you know, in, in, in research matters, uh, and even asked him for his permission in, uh, to use his, uh, character, which is named, given different name in, in the film, which, uh, I made the, the shell. <laughs> it wasn't shelled for any reason other than those backroom problems and background problems. Nothing to do. But John very, um, very graciously said yes. And I, and I went to his place and I remember knocking on his door and uh, he stuck his head out the window because, of course, he had CCTV cameras all over. And uh, um, he said, I, I can't come down just now. He said, I'm babysitting. <laughs> so. You know, so uh, you know, so we've got all these people's lives who, even though we we see them as they're probably running around doing this, doing that, that's not the case at all. You know, and people have a totally wrong opinion, and I think that's the opinion that um, circulated about the Sears family. It, it, it circulated, and it was wrong. And I wanted to work on so. So then that's where I was in court, and that's how it uh, came about. And Watson was the man in the dock, and uh, he admitted to killing Big Graham, laughed at the police about it, and whatever. So that's how it came about where I, I was asked to um, take the site down and not report anymore. Um, so there you are, long, long, long story that one. <laughs> Yeah, but a good one. I've got to ask you about Paddy Conroy. Um, obviously, again, the Conroys are, are very prevalent within the pages of your your books. Another, you know, solid West End family. Has it surprised you? You know, the 
you know, the way that things have panned out with Paddy. I mean, he, you know, he, he put his head above the parapet when the Sears were in prison, appeared on McIntyre uncovered and, and proceeded to, you know, to, to have a, a pop really at the Sears family, labelling them informers. But then after that, um, you know, when Stephen and John were released from prison and they, they approached me to do the book, um, he seemed to, to back off. But then the inventive social media, of course, has created a, a new issue. Um, Paddy got himself onto various social media outlets, started having a go at the Sears family. And then when the Sears family started giving it back, um, he didn't quite like it. And that led to Paddy, of course, uh, going to the police, making a complaint against Stephen Sears, uh, making a five-page statement, having him arrested. Uh, Stephen then went to court pled guilty and uh, received obviously a fine and a conviction for malicious communications. So has it surprised you, you know, the, the rise and fall of Paddy? Uh, yes and no. I've met Paddy a number of times because obviously again in the research uh, in a professional capacity. And I did have some sympathy for Paddy because uh, he always felt that people were getting or, or going to read into things um, that he hadn't done. In particular, I think one of the matters was relating to um, the shipment of drugs coming in from abroad and uh, this boat it was, I don't know, when it, when it was stopped by customs. And I always remember Paddy saying to me, but, but I, I didn't... Uh, I don't know, inform, I didn't this, I didn't, I said, I know, I said, but, but nothing in the book is saying that you informed. I said, people will read it. But he perhaps felt um, up against it, you know, possibly. And I do see, I see it from both sides, of course. You have the one side, Paddy, where he simply wanted to, I don't know, didn't simply, but he wanted to, to make his stand uh, there, and I understand the Sayers point because again, like John, when when he believed I was calling his family uh, informant, but I wasn't, um, then he protected his family, and the same with other members of the Sayers family. Remember, they were a very close knit group. I even met John's mother, um, rest her soul, lovely, lovely lady, fantastic, lovely lady, you know. Um, and here we have a situation where the, 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 that family is very close-knit and people who are seen to or do attack it then, they won't stand for that. But there, it's not a case that they won't stand for it by saying, look, here, drink this acid, uh, put your head in the plastic bag and we'll do it for None of that at all. It's simply to stand up and say, look, why are you putting our family down? They're allowed to, to give that word. They're allowed to give some telecommunication and say, look, please stop it. Anybody would. But in Paddy's side of things, you're right. I think he went on McIntyre, went on social media. And when you do that, you open yourself up to scrutiny. And the test of that, that scrutiny is can you complain about anything? You know, are you innocent of anything? And in one side of things, the, the, the crime side, they may say, well, you gave a statement. 
fifth people that's wrong. The other side, then Paddy will say, but yes, but he, he got a sentence, he got a conviction for threatening me. You know, so which side do we, you know, you have to have the wisdom of Solomon um, in, in these things. And I always think, uh, I used to see myself to some degree as a father confessor, where people would, would tell me things, but I, I couldn't really divulge <laughs> to as you know yourself. <laughs> Your head will be full of the same uh, confessions, and if not more, that you, you simply then can't go around banging these things about because you will start trouble. Um, I think personally we should all get together, non-alcohol party, <laughs> and say, look, let's, we're getting on a bit, we're getting older a bit, let's be sensible about this now. You know, we saw in our wild oats when we were younger, we, we've been in the midst of the crime world, we've done it all, let's cooperate and be sensible about this. That, that's my opinion, but whether that will happen, I really don't know. How much did drugs change things in the Northeast? We see a lot of films these days about the Essex boys and, you know, those guys who got shot in the, in the Range Rover in, in the 90s. Uh, was there a same kind of, you know, boom in, in the Northeast and Newcastle in particular? Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. And, uh, well, we know that uh, we're, the, I mean, the drug scene in the Northeast wasn't just confined to being uh, in its own domain in the Northeast because of them it went further in the field. Manchester, of course, uh, Scotland, you know, it encompassed a massive big area. So we had then people importing the drugs from those areas and their contacts were quite big. So yes, drugs did massively, um, massively change because, it, and of course, it was a very lucrative business. There was a lot of money. Uh, before the days of money laundering where you could go out and buy a property, um, you know, literally cash, put the cash over the counter, you've bought it. Now anything over £500 to a solicitor has to be logged. Anything over £400 in a bank, cash. if it's not, you know, the cash in business, has to be logged. It's all money laundering. But yes, that changed it. And there was a, a, a sort of high-ranking criminal from... from uh, Northeast, and he had a numerous properties, but when he was convicted, the police took them all off him. Um, you know, this was after they were running around with bulletproof vests on and shooting at each other, <laughs> and then he was convicted. So it didn't work, but yes, it changed things massively in terms of um, people who, uh, in the background, were committing murders for these drug dealers, and this and they're living in some fancy flash houses now, those very same people. Um, so it brought upon a, a lot of people some, some great misery and great joy to some others. But out of the great joy, they have to live with what they have done, I think, the conscience. Yeah, 100%. There's a few unsolved murders. Viv's is one of them, of course. Peter Beaumont Gowlin is another that comes to mind. Do you think these murders will ever be solved, Stephen? Well, the Viv one has, really. That, that was solved in the Freddie Knight's trial. Uh, that, that was solved and, um, you know, it exonerated the uh, sayers from that 
unofficially exonerated but um, a number of mur- yes, the, the Gowland murder um, you know you know from your own experience and, and research we know we, we have solved numerous cases that are still outstanding for the police the police have solved them but they haven't got any hard evidence. And I don't believe at this stage that the hard evidence will be produced. It's longevity too far gone now. And people have moved on. Remember now, children are dealing, you know, at school, they're working on the tablets, on computers. It's a techno age now. Then it wasn't techno. It was still hitting people over the head with crowbars and robbing uh, you know, cash vans at gunpoint and that sort of thing. That's all changed now. Everything is practically trying to be a cashless society. That's what the government are trying to do, make it cashless. And then when it's cashless, that is when they have control because they isolate your bank from you. What will you do? You make a misdemeanor. You are isolated. You've got no hard cash. Whereas once upon a time, you could run around with a case with a million pounds in it and very easily run off to South America, that's fine. Now, that's all been chopped down. So the criminal now, it, you know, where we used to see them with a, with a, with a raccoon mask on, a sawn shotgun, we now see them with the laptop. Yeah, things have changed for, you know, massively, uh, gone, gone, you know, gone beyond what we probably could have ever expected. Uh, you touched on Panda, Kenny Anderson, and uh, God rest his soul, we're, we're, yes, we're now, yes. we've now lost Kenny, and anyone who, uh, anyone who is on my YouTube channel, you can find some, some very interesting uh, long interviews with Kenny that were uh, part and parcel of the, the, the DVD that I did with Media Arts the day the craze came to town, and he was a hell of a character. As Stephen's already mentioned, he spoke in a very, very low a uh, low voice and you know sometimes incomprehensible you had to really pay attention to listen to him and usually he was well lubricated with his uh his favorite drink or maybe something else and uh he was a hell of a character but yeah you, you were going to do his book it never came to fruition but he did help you with the viv books one of the questions obviously you asked him and, and one of the stories that he tells in the second book was uh, about reggie cray and 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 of course the you know, the Cray twins were very notorious gangland brothers running the East End of London in the 1960s. Um, and, of course, you know, the Crays visited Newcastle, and he, he had a story to tell about that, didn't he? Well, he did, and uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say too much on this because you are the uh, Cray expert on this, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in danger of... Um, when you're dealing in anything that's factual, then... Mm-hmm you can very easily get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, I know you're going to go, stop. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just think that it, there's so many stories about it, Stephen, isn't there? And he, he did have one. He, he felt he knew the story. Well, I don't know. Was this the story where they, they, they were invited to get back on the train and um, go yeah. back to London? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, and basically they, they came north. Uh, I think they went to a club, but this and that, and... I think then they were just marched to the uh, train station. On your way, boys, goodbye. That mm. was their short uh, interlude into uh, the northeast. Because of course, don't forget, then you had the 
gaming machines, the Revaglios, and all the, you know, and the murder in the bush car in Durham, the body in the bush car in Durham under the bridge, all these things that were, were, were very heavy. And don't forget, Jack Carter was, it was a very, it was a very Jack Carterish um, way, even though Jack Carter was uh, long after the face had been marched out of Newcastle. But that's how it was. It was uh, doom and gloom if you uh, did anything wrong and didn't say yes to these men. And whether you were the craze or not, uh, these men were very high-ranking criminals. And that's when uh, you would just have a gun pointed at you, do this or do that, end of. There wasn't any... Uh, million CCTV cameras about to catch the activity. Nothing. You'd be lucky if anybody even had a Kodak brownie on them to catch the activity. So they could do things with impunity then. And that is possibly the craze thought, my God, we're wrong, these northern lads are nutters. Let's get out of here, you know. I'm not sure, but I'm sure you will correct me. You will correct me. You are the, the expert. I don't think we ever really got to the bottom of it. Um, you know, the way that we concluded our documentary was, you know, there's five or six different stories. This is what I believe actually happened. But I think there's a little bit of truth in all of them. Um, you know, but, you know, ultimately the craze had the connection. Subsequently, during our research, we had photographs given to us by various people which which proved that the craze were in Newcastle on more than one occasion. Um, the, you know, the Dolce Vita photographs, you know, where Paddy Hallett had managed to squeeze in and sit next to them were, were, were you know, were, were, were quite widely available because they were, you know, in the Chronicles archives. But we, we, we received other photographs. Eric Mason provided us with a photograph in the Dolce Vita of a, a completely separate trip. Then we had photographs given to us of the craze down on Newcastle Quayside on a US frigate, which was mentioned in one of the craze books uh, subsequently in the 90s. Um, so, you know, we, we, had a, we had a testimony from Arthur McKenzie, a former policeman who, uh, you know, claimed that he pulled a car over with a, a drunk uh, heavyweight boxer in the back, which of course was Joe Louis, and um, Reggie Cray was a passenger in the car with uh, with his driver. So, um, so many great stories came out. Um, so the connection with Newcastle was already there. Uh, I think I think getting kicked out of Newcastle, you know, potentially happened at some point, but not before they had a, a jolly good time up here on on a bit of a jolly boys out on more than one occasion. And uh, I think the big the big thing that I always found interesting was that. Although it never made it onto tape, we 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 did get down we we did get down to uh, to Leeds and interview Marcus Levy before he passed away. Um, and Marcus, of course, was one of the brothers who owned the Vita. And I just remember um, catching a glimpse of a, a copy of our story, which was the Craze biography on the um, on his bookshelf. And I knew in that book that. There was reference to their court case at the Old Bailey in, you know, in between 68 and 69. And Ron Cray actually makes reference in the book uh, where he thanks the Levy brothers from Newcastle for paying £5,000 towards their defence. Now, we're talking about 1968-69 here. £5,000 is a hell of a lot more than 5000 you know, back in the 60s than, it, you know, it sounds today. And you wonder what the Levy's old the craze so much for or why they were prepared to give the craze so much and I asked Marcus Levy that on, on the day at his house um, I've never seen anyone go as, as white as nervous 
Um, and then he, he, he composed himself and essentially said, I, I'd rather not speak about that, Steve. Um, and I said, well, I'm, it's not, not for recording purposes. It's not for, you know, I haven't got you on camera. I just, I'm just interested. Why would you, why would you put that kind of money up for the crazed defense? And he never answered the question. Um, and I always find that fascinating and we'll never have the answer because Marcus has now sadly passed away. Um, but you know, it, it, it always intrigues me, you know, the connection between the Crays and Newcastle and so many stories pass away with the likes of Marcus and Panda now no longer with us and Johnny Heenan, another guy, Joe Lyles now passed away. All of these characters who were connected to that era have all gone. Paddy Hallett, he's passed away as well. So, you know, we, we did our best. We tried to get the, uh, the true stories out, but I think some of these stories are, you know, are, are sadly never going to be told now, Stephen. Yes, yeah. Well, the, the Levy legacy still lives on to some degree because that name would, um, we just had to raise that name in Newcastle a number of years ago for people to stop in the track. And go, oh, right. I'm doing something for the Levy's. Oh, right. On your way, sir. No problem. Even the police would let you go. Um, yeah. But it's, it's changed, changed, changed all the time now. And we, you, you and I were, were blessed or lucky. When we, we, even you running around as a youngster, you know, uh, when, when you first uh, befriended uh, Reggie Cray, you know, and you're writing to them, visiting them, uh, literally, had an insight into, uh, like, Tony Lambiano, Chris Lambiano, Joe Pyle, you know, all these people, and you've seen them, you've met them, you carry their stories within you and today to mention these people to the society of what we live in it tends to be lost on them and i think eventually we just, as much as we look on the highwaymen of the 1700s in two or three hundred years time they're going to look back on these characters the levy brothers and the craze you know, but however, they will look to you and say, and this is the guy, Steve Ray. He says in his book, but in your words, what you write, even though those stories are, you're not sure, you have to interpret that best you can. And if you've got five different stories, you, you have to sort of sit down and think, well, what, what is the likelihood of this story being true? And as you said, that the craze had been in Newcastle a number of different times. People were siddling up to them on seats to get into photo frame, you know, and they twist the head towards them, you know, and uh, they want to be seen with them. You know, and he was running around with Joe Louis, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like, like running around with um, one of the, well, whoever's the champion now, I know. It's fair Tyson Fury, yeah. Yes, you, you, you pull up in the car, you're sitting, you know, in the back seat with Tyson Fury. You say, oh, hello, Mr. Fury. Yes, on your way, sir. Goodbye. Um, so they will look to you for anecdotal evidence, even. And, and remember, a lot of it is anecdotal. We haven't got the solid proof. We can't put in the books, here is the solid paperwork. Here is the statement of Mr. So-and-so. It's unfortunately in the... Uh, I, I have had to circumnavigate around those very same problems with a lot of the characters that I've touched on 
and you yourself, you know, if you've been told a story and it, it goes against another story you've been told about the same incident, what do you do? Um, whose side do you take? It's difficult. So you are there, you are the historian for future generations, because I'm sure they'll be making films about this in a hundred years' time about these characters. You know, and about Ned Kelly. I mean, look how long ago Ned Kelly lived uh, in Australia. But yet they were still making films about him. Uh, Bugsy Malone, you know, uh, Scarface, all these characters that they made films many years later. So I, I believe you will be the historian they will come to when it comes to these characters. And you had a major insight into their behind-the-scenes living, and don't forget they tell you certain things in confidence, and those confidences you uh, must abide by, firstly, out of, to secure their respect, and secondly, to keep yourself safe, you know? But it's always out of respect, you know, that you do that, and that's hopefully how they've given that story to you, out of respect for you, not the fact that you are too feared to tell it. But rather like now when someone's passed away, then you can tell the story. And I can tell the same similar story you say about Andrew Anderson. He passed away. But I wouldn't um, I wouldn't defile him as a person. He was a lovely guy. Uh, well, we went to a number of places in London to events and wherever. Um, I remember, you know, Dave Courtney's his, his event. <laughs> and uh, as low as you said how Panda Anderson spoke, he spoke continuously through, I think, one of Dave Courtney's uh, events from start to end <laughs> while he was sitting at the table. He never took the time to the notice of Dave Courtney, you know. <laughs> He's probably just yawning and going, well, I've heard this all before. But he still went to the event. That's the main thing. And we are the historians, then, of what has happened, how it's come about. Here's the different versions and make up your own mind on that. Yeah, he was very, very well respected, Panda. Very well respected. That always struck me in London how well respected he was. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I remember we, we we were lost in the North Circular because we went there by car, and we run around this North uh, and the eighth passage of the North Circular. <laughs> he was in the back of the car, quite, um, quite. Uh, well, not in either, but uh, spaced out sort of thing. And he wasn't bothered. <laughs> and I've seen, thank God, Panda hasn't seen. I've went to see, I couldn't get off this North Circular. So uh, we had some fun as well. It wasn't just all serious uh, stuff, you know. We, we did have a good few laughs. Tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, Charlie Bronson. I mean, you, you, you had the fortune, I suppose, of, of that involvement with him. I've been involved with him, you know, on, on numerous occasions as well. I still speak to him, Charles Salvador, as he is now. But, I mean, you know, you, you did do, you know, did do a hell of a lot for him, Stephen. I did, I did do a lot for him. And initially, when I, I, I wrote to him, it was out of respect. Um, it wasn't to try and secure anything. It was just simply... Well done, and I see you doing this, see you doing that, doing great things. And lo and behold, out of the blue came a reply with a little drawing, you know. And I thought, oh, oh I thought, thank you. You know, this guy can draw here. He's a great uh, artist. And it just spanned from there. And as it happens, I've said I'd already written a few books. And he said, oh, he said I, I've got one here, here. He said, I've got one here. So I'll send you the script, mate. Anyway, so he sent it. And as it happens, 
Um, he'd already signed up with uh, a journalist to do a book. Um, and I then co-authored this book with him and published it. And they both came out at the same time. <laughs> and of course, he didn't tell the other the other journalist. He didn't tell the other journalist that he, you know, you had this deal going with me. So he's a crafty character. You know, he's a canny character in how he he take it from me. He was a businessman out in this world and did hadn't wasted his life on crime. I think he'd have a pretty good head for business because he knew how to negotiate. He didn't need all that that muscle and threat and, and, and gruffness about him. And, and you know, his mother, I mean, uh, I mean Ira, what a, honest, I've, you know, I've stayed uh, at her, not near her place, for, you know, I interviewed her on matters. Um, you know, and what a lovely lady. I mean, and she stuck by Charlie, she visited him in just about every prison you can think of, even being turned away many times when Charlie kicked off and wouldn't let him have his visit. You know, so he, he's got a nice family uh, around him. He can capitalize on what life he has got left because he could, could live to 100. Um, it could be knighted, who knows, in 20 years' time because this man is given to charity the world over. If he sees a cause, honestly, he, he will turn his pockets inside out and say, here, have what I've got. So for a man to help as many as he has, I mean, practically every auction that was going at some point for some child or somebody ill, it had a piece of Bronson art in it. You know, I mean, you can't see any fairer than that about the guy. But then on the other hand, on the flip side of the coin, is he helps a lot, but then he also does a lot of bad and goes against himself because he is the loser. No one else is the loser. And possibly, hopefully now, he may be, be, be coming out of childhood, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way, that he gets some common sense because, you know, he would shock and surprise me many occasions and he would come up with ideas and, and things. This guy, I don't think he's ever been out of the newspapers for the last 20 years. Now, as a publicist, to try and get someone in the newspapers, you know yourself, in the early days, I do know, I was sending out something like three or four hundred faxes a week. The faxes, if anybody remembers what a fax is. <laughs> it's sort of like an email on paper. Um, I'd be sending three or four hundred a week, you know, to publications to try and get something, some my name out there in the lights. Whereas Charlie, all what he has to do is lift his little finger and whoop, there he is. He ha so he's his own publicist. You know, he's been married. How many times has he been married and divorced inside? You know, it's, it's unbelievable. He's won so many Coastler Awards for his art. More Coastler Awards than you could wallpaper a room with. Literally, he's got so much going for him. I remember we did Solitary Fitness, and that was one of the first prison fitness books to come out. I mean, since then, everybody's jumped on the bandwagon. Convict Fitness. Behind the bars, they've all jumped on the bar, but Charlie was the first one to do that. The same guy, 134 press ups in a minute. You know, he had so much to give, and you know, I believe that um, he still has a lot to give. But how do we test that? 
by the bring them out quickly, suddenly, or it has to be a gradual release where he himself feels good. Because remember, Charlie is behind bars. He's been in strong boxes, secluded boxes, in little boxes, you name the boxes, Charlie's been in them. And he's remained sane to some degree, apart from when he was, was in Baltimore, of course, <laughs> when he had the uh, liquid cough, which I believe a lot of those drugs what they injected forcibly into him have manifested to some degree in him not thinking straight. Because he got to a certain age before he did this stupid garage robbery, and then he got himself locked up for that. And then thereafter, it started to spiral, and then the next thing you know, he's in Broadmoor, and then the next thing you know, he's being pumped so full of drugs, he may have been just a walking pharmacist. That's how, how much drugs he had in him. So, I have to um, lambast the authorities on that side of things for creating the bad side of Bronson to some degree, to some degree. And for that, they must make amends and they must start to sort of get him back and repatriate him with freedom, if not uh, suddenly, but in a gradual way that is structured for him, but I also believe that if, if we look back in time, when we look at the electroshock treatment that uh, people used to have, we look at that, back at that, as if it was some Frankenstein um, treatment, we will also look back on uh, the lardactyl liquid cost that Johnson was uh, forcibly given, and, uh, and uh, beatings, I mean, I, I was... <laughs> I was uh, in court in the heart in the court in London because uh, Jack Straw took me to court when I discovered, and I have to thank uh, T, who was Charlie's. Um, he wasn't a solicitor; he was a fee earner for the company, but he was Charlie's solicitor anyway. Who gave me sixty-four hours of footage, and I found this where. About ten prison officers, and they all had truncheons, and Bronson was on that ground, and they systematically smashed that man up with truncheons on that ground. And I published that, I put that in the video. Jack Store didn't like it. He took me to court. I appeared in court, I was travelled to London, because I thought, well, I've got the right to show that this man has been abused. He has been smashed up. But from what the stories he told, here is the evidence. And lo and behold, after I don't know how many days trial, it was so many days it seemed to go on and on. And uh, I was then given a two-week suspended prison sentence, all costly anything, and um, to remove the items from the video and um, not ever to use that footage. That was it. I had no choice. You know, I'd lost that, that case. And that, 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 there's many people who came after me and said, you've done sweet affairs for that, Bronson. You've just used that man. You've just sucked him dry. And it cost me £64,000 in costs two weeks to spend the prison sentence 
and I stood up for that man. And I still have that evidence somewhere. I still have the evidence. I've seen a snippet of it. I've seen about four seconds of it in the TV documentary. And they shouldn't have used it, but I didn't say anything. So I thought maybe you see that. But I have the full Winston Green prison it was. Winston Green. And um, T has to be congratulated who Charlie put, always put down. That's Lenny T, bloody no good. And he gave me all that footage. And I sat through 64 hours of his video footage then. It wasn't a CD or nothing. And he had it to do that. So here we have a case that the British government, uh, Jack Straw, the, um, I can't remember what his position was in the government then, Home Secretary. Home Secretary. Um, were, it, it, it was um, sitting on it, uh, you know, was, was covering up evidence. Now, that to me tells me that, that that whole government stunk, to be honest. And I don't have any uh, time for the government because they're, we, 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 we are still living in a world of gangsters. But unfortunately, those gangsters now walk around in suits and parliament. And we have to obey what they say or we get imprisoned. And that comes down to the control of bank accounts. The cashless society, again, that is control. It is all about control. If you don't pay your TV license, they come and take your car away because you've got a court order against you and the bailiffs have come, your car's outside the door, so you've lost your car. You don't pay your poll tax, your, your, your council tax. At one point, you are taken to the court and if you didn't pay, you're put in prison. So a gangster knocks on your door, oh, give me that kind of back, lad. Oh, go to hell. Bang, to do that. They will be wrong, but yet, lawfully, all these, these governments and councils can carry out these lawful acts, I say in court, either side, court, lawful acts, unquote. And here we have Bronson, who has always been saying that the charging of him with the shields, the, the, the hosing him, the giving him the undue treatment, unfair treatment, and I had the evidence. And that, for me, is belief enough that he did endure all of that. I'm not saying you should have a talisman around his neck saying sympathy with me, I'm the victim. Far from it, hey, he's not a victim at all, that man. Yet, he is the victim. He is the victim of an unfair, unjust system and he's gone way, way over his tariff now, his life tariff. Child killers get set free in, in less years than what uh, Charlie has served since his life sentence was given. And he only had a tariff, he had a small tariff. The man still enough to, thank you, double that tariff. And all sorts of legal teams have been behind this, but I think if he sold enough art and just said, Keep all that money and I'm going to use it for a legal team. He could get the best. He could have got someone like Jonathan Silver QC. I mean, Jonathan Silver still working, who John Sayers had. And he would have took it and he would have won it in Corfman. But it, all what happened is that half hearted attempts and people stabbing at it. Um, you know, even my court appearance, I was re represented by Iranian court in London. Um, and he then even had me on the site saying he was represented Stephen Richards, oh, oh, for this and that. And well, of course, they represented me, but they didn't win Charlie's case where they had the evidence reinstated because it was legal. And 
you know, they didn't do that. They weren't able to do that. But, so it was wrong to use my name to bolster their company in making people believe that they were, were the best law firm since sliced bread. Wrong to do that because Charlie was the man I was fighting for. Charlie is the man I went to London for. And Charlie is the man, you know, I aimed for to do that. He, you know, to give him all what he deserved in terms of recognition from what he'd been claiming of over all those years. And here we have just the tip of the iceberg with Charlie. Remember all the other thousands of people who made the same claims that they were beaten up uh, in, in prison, they were given bad treatment, they were locked in solitary for no reason, they were just given slops for food. Charlie's the tip of the iceberg. And if we examine more and more on that, we can see how a lot of these people did end up uh, back in Broadmoor, or did end up destitute, or did end up with real heavy mental illness. So that, that was my aim there. That was a, was a genuine aim. I didn't have any reason um, to do that. But um, um, after that, Charlie and I lingered on a little bit. But as you know, <laughs> Charlie, uh, Joe, when Joe, Joe Pyle uh, rang me from London, uh, you know, yeah. he said, uh, is it, yeah, he said, what's going on with you, you and Charlie? Uh, I said, well, Joe, I said, honestly, I said, I haven't got a clue. Um, you know, so all I know then is, rather, I published a few of his books, but then I felt uneasy, and I wanted it to be all above board, so we got John Blake uh, of Blake Publishing in London to take the books on. So that meant Charlie had a... Um, see exactly what was happening in terms of agreements and royalty fees paid directly from them. So I felt much better about that. Um, and, you know, John Blake, uh, he, well, he sold the company now to Bonnier, Bonnier, Bonnier Publishing, mm -hmm. Bonnier Books, sorry, UK, um, whose Charlie's books are with now. But then he had the film made, made about him, of course. Um, so... After that, at that point, Charlie and I had already parted ways, but we had already been working on a film script, which was nothing like the film, the film <laughs> that eventually came into screen. It was nothing like that at all. Um, but I'll give Charlie credit, as I say, in terms of that and uh, how he has been able to be his best publicist um, in what he's done. And But he gives from the heart. You know, he really gives... and. For every good cause, uh, there you know he's been there, and also for unjust causes, he's been there. So a lot of people tar him with, with you know people. Uh, when I used to, I, now I don't bother with any social media, but at that point I used to have a look and read what people read about Charlie, you know, and some uh, disparaging remarks. Um, even though Charlie and I had fallen out at this point, because <laughs> I can't even remember what it was about. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's that long ago. Uh, as you know yourself, he, he falls in and out of love uh, with people uh, on a daily basis. So it's quite normal. So I'll forgive Charlie for that. Um, I'm, I'm not perturbed by that. But it, a, it would be great to see him making some inroads, and you're working with him now, Agara, um, on that side of things. So possibly, you know, now you're his historian. <laughs> it falls to you. Some great 
memories there, Stephen. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I could I could talk to you all night. I'm just uh, just been looking through um, eBay and uh, Amazon whilst we spoke because I, it, it's it's amazing, really. The books that you that you started off writing, Viv, simply the best, and uh, Viv the Geordie Mafia. You can get a copy of Viv and the Geordie Mafia on Amazon. Uh, you, you know, obviously, there's some used versions on there for about seven thirty nine. So people are selling them. So honestly, people, it's well worth having a look, gang. But the, the books obviously when I went to Blake's has had a few makeovers Gang Wars of the North um, Viv Graham of course there's the other book Viv, Viv Graham and Lee Duffy Parallel Lives um, there's also Fight to the Death uh, a true story you know the, the, the book's been rebranded but Fight to the Death um, the paperback version a pre-owned version on eBay is currently going for £102 um, and that's not an auction. That's what the guy's got it up for. He had seven of them, and he's only got one left. And uh, you know, this is the beauty of it, Stephen. Like something you started way back in the nineties is still making money to this day. It is, and I'm, I'm pleased that gentleman's making a hundred and twenty pounds a book because it, it means you know the industry that we are working in. Um, and uh, may I just say this before we? I know we're going to end, uh, and I can't say it after we end because I won't be on on uh, on yeah, your show yeah. to um, We talked uh, some while ago privately about uh, true crime, and I mentioned about Tony Thompson. who very kindly reminded me of his name. It is he won an award for a crime book defeated, a factual crime book. Yeah, but but. No one else has won any awards for factual kind books. They've all been golden daggers for fiction. Yeah. And I think that we we have done an, a lot of work, a heck of a lot of... Anyone can write fiction. It's a story. You just pull it out your head. You know, with fact, you get fact wrong, you're shot for it. Metaphorically shot. And we've done that much and spilled our souls onto the pages to make sure the stories are right. For the sake of the industry, we've, we've had sweet FA in terms of awards. And I think, to, to be honest, true crime writers, we're in a league of our own. I haven't written books for years, but I, I'm speaking now on your behalf. So at least it would be very, very nice to see you being awarded something for your work, your hard work, your diligence. And, you know, when you're sitting there three in the morning and everybody's in bed and you've got to be back up eight again, you're doing all that work and you get it wrong. They say, oh, he's got it wrong. So you make sure it's right. So I think you deserve some credit for that. And it'd be nice to see you carry the mantle and get an award for all the hard work that we previous two crime writers have done. But we've got Sweet FA for it from Tony Thompson. And I'm pleased and really, uh, really pleased to see document for it. But it's simply to say that we have put our sweat into it and that's what we're getting out of it. And you can hold it up for all the other writers, all the other writers, the aspiring writers, the writers that want because they see Golden Dagger Awards being given to to um, charity cases, I believe, you know, uh, to uh, uh, fiction writers, but it's the worthless, the worthless, you know, the bandied about like uh, confetti. So, come the day you get your award, invite me to the do, because oh. I I want to see that. All right. I most certainly will, mate. I most certainly will. Stephen, as, as I said earlier, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm sure that everyone who tunes into the channel will thoroughly enjoy, you know, your stories and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully you continue to do well in the future. Look forward to seeing you soon, mate. Thank you for coming on. 
It's a pleasure, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I know there's going to be a lot of people uh, happy, but you still get the odd troll. So I'm thick-skinned now, and so is Steve. I tell you, he, this, we, we between us, we're the, uh, well, we're the, we're the top of the A-team. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Good night. Bye now. Bye.